0: This episode of the Sustainable Fashion Podcast, we're in the Fashion Reimagining Club on Clubhouse talking about extended producer responsibility EPR for sustainable fashion. The Sustainable Fashion Podcast is in partnership with the pink kangaroo podcast network my work is focused on sustainability and innovation and the fashion Reimagine club here on clubhouse we host the sustainable fashion conversation every tuesday and that's to provide a platform for fashion businesses to share their sustainability journey and experience so we generally have like discussions and mq um, and a's um, and conversations related to sustainable fashion. So it's about technology, sustainability and in- innovation. That's like the the intersection that we always like to discuss. So if you haven't joined the Fashion Reimagined Club yet, the greenhouse at the top of the screen, you can join there. We've also got a Telegram group if you want to keep up to date um, on the conversations behind the scenes and know what's going on and get access to resources and things like that. If you're on Telegram, you can join the link. Um, that's been shared to get more involved in the club so um, every week host a conversation a room on a different topic and I invite you up to come and share your opinions and yeah so we're looking at doing sustainability the right way so we've had a special conversation last week about activism and this is kind of a continuation of that conversation so we're actually looking at EPR for sustainable fashion. So for, for those of you that don't know what EPR is, it stands for extended producer responsibility. And I'm gonna go into a little bit more about that um, as we progress. But I'm gonna let Chandru do a bit of an introduction to who he is as well. And um yeah, we've only got two two rules for the club. So respect others, even if they have opposing opinions. So we always give everyone a chance to speak and share their views because I think we can learn from each other and everyone can learn even from something that they don't agree with and um always keep to the topic of the room for the conversations with comments and questions so today we talk about EPR for sustainable fashion so we'd like to stay on top on topic with that so um yeah Chandru do you want to just do a, a quick introduction of yourself before I go into like the questions of the day in this discussion um, points that we've agreed on, and um, I probably I've got a little bit of a definition for extended producer responsibility, but you might want to build off the back of that as well. So, um, yeah, go ahead with your your personal introduction, and then we'll move on.
1: Hi, Bukola. Uh, thanks for the invite. Great to be back. It's actually been months since I've been on this platform. Hopefully, it's like yeah. riding a bike, and it's all pretty easy. Uh, my name is Chandru Adwani. Um, I have, for the last 21 years, been running a plastic bottle recycling business uh, in South Africa. Uh, It's part of a group that has a presence also in West Africa. And when we talk a lot about sustainability, I'm very mindful about sharing with people about how the Southern Hemisphere has uh, different challenges and different perceptions around sustainability Uh, So my role is really to share what has been our experiences uh, pretty much uh, at the coalface kind of experience on uh, what sustainability really looks like, uh, what is possibly greenwashing, uh, what has been proved not to work. And really then, you know, with a view on a call to meaningful action and not just action, which is easily done, uh, is to share the experiences that we've gone through over the last 20 years part of uh, this thing with plastic bottles which is primarily PET which is polyester uh, we make in Cape Town a fiber from it which to the uh, greatest degree goes into industrial applications but uh, has been peeking its nose uh, into the garment industry and what's been interesting about that is where it was first a very welcome addition Um, it has Uh, itself raised some very pertinent uh, questions about uh, synthetics uh, uh, in fast fashion and really whether we should be uh, going down that path. So that's a little bit about me, uh, what we do. I'm blessed with a wife and two sons, uh, both of who are Generation Z um, and both of who remind me that they're starting to have a very dim view how my generation has treated the planet, So I'm really invested in in finding good solutions around sustainability. Uh, So on that note, Bukola, looking forward to the discussion uh, and hopefully I can share uh, what we've been through. Thank you.
0: Yeah, amazing. And it's a small room today. So hopefully um, a few more people will come. As I mentioned earlier, this is... um, a conversation that is going to be kind of led by me and and Chandru but we do want you to come and participate with questions and things like that so do raise your hand and come up if you do want to um participate with questions and it's going to be a really interesting conversation as well so um definitely um ping people in that you think need to hear about this i know the title of the room might be um a bit obscure to people But if you um, are enjoying the conversation as we go through, definitely ping people in and they can come and participate. So, um, yeah. So extended producer responsibility. So a little bit of an explanation about what this is, is basically it's designed to divert and reduce waste. So EPR closes the loop on materials management by um, using products, product waste, um, when a consumer discards it and then reusing it um as a raw material to produce a new product or packaging material, so EPR legislation places the responsibility for the treatment and disposal of certain consumer products on the producers, manufacturers, and retailers so that's what we're t- going to be talking about today um yeah, so Chandru, what is your experience being with EPR? There were a few benefits that we want to to um go over as well, but um maybe talk to your experience, really, how you got into it, what you've been doing in your business. And um, you're the person that actually raised the conversation that this needs to be pushed forward in the fashion industry, and that's something that I'm really championing now. And um, You'll probably be hearing me talking more about EPI and there's some great stuff going on, actually, in the UK. And um, in general, on this topic, um, it's really building momentum. So do you want to just talk a little bit about your experience, how long you've been working on this and with this,
1: and... Yeah. Happily, yeah. So for me, um, EPR was the raison d'etre of our beginning uh, back in the year 2000. And back then, very interestingly, in South Africa, the Minister of Environment was also the Minister of Tourism. Uh, At that stage, a lot of backlash from tourists, on which South Africa depends a lot on, on what was dubbed the national flower, which were plastic bags, and not so much PET bottles, but boy, did people recognize the red label, which was a Coca-Cola bottle. So back then, the minister was threatening to put levies uh, on these items uh, to force industry to clear up uh, what they perceived to be pollution generated by them. Uh, In a nutshell, the plastic bag industry didn't take him seriously. And for the better part of the last 15 years, we've been paying for plastic bags in South Africa. Sadly, all that money goes to Treasury. It doesn't really come back uh, to recycling. But I think they had good intentions. But back then, industry leaders like Coca-Cola were pretty much uh, marshaled into starting a recycling initiative which is where we came in uh, to just get it up and running. But at that stage, it was very much voluntary. So for us, the whole uh, assignment was start collecting, start recycling, and just let's show government that we're doing something. So that's the origins of how we started. Um, Over the course of 20 years, uh, for as long as it was voluntary, the challenge really was... How do we really grow it meaningfully uh, when there wasn't really any mandate that people uh, had to use recycled material? I think the premise of any recycling, whether it's plastics or garments or electronic goods, is collect and do what? And for us, the game changer was November of last year, where the South African government made EPR mandatory for three industries, one of which was paper and packaging. The second was electrical and electronic goods. And the third one was lighting and light components. So to share with you how my world has changed since then really made me believe that if we want meaningful action on any product uh, that's causing serious pollution issues, then the way to go is mandatory EPR. So a little bit of background there. uh, And that's how... EPR has become very meaningful in my life thank you yeah
0: thanks Chandru
1: yeah so the,
0: the whole idea of making it mandatory is really like the focus of this discussion um today what are the steps we need to start taking to kind of push forward for those kind of changes I think that's amazing and it's such a hard journey to be on and I'm glad that you stuck with it and now you're here for the next leg of the journey to kind of champion that throughout um obviously different jurisdictions and get other people talking about it and things like that so that's amazing and stacy welcome to the stage i'm glad you've come up and before i move to the next point of discussion to open up the discussion a bit more do you want to introduce yourself do you want to ask a question make a comment hi Bacola.
2: hi shandu i have been in rooms can you hear me i just lost connection there for a second yeah um I think I've been in rooms with you before, but I know that you are one to admire within this uh, field. And I guess my question, I work in um, sustainable um, consulting, I guess, in the fashion space between brands and their packaging. So I sort of connect dots um and try to stay on top of the next um, development within the fashion industry as far as sustainability is concerned. And I'm curious because I heard something about um, textiles being um, sort of grouped together with plastics as far as... um, the challenges in the future and recyclability and repurposing. And I was curious if you know anything about that. And if you know, if we can take steps within the fashion industry now, that would um, sort of alleviate problems that you might have in recycling.
0: Yeah, so um, I'm going to share a link. I do have a link about what's going on with EPR in the in the UK it was it's actually something I wanted to share later in the discussion but I'll share it now it's just a really short article but it just talks about basically um by the end of the year the UK is going to present a new environmental bill and and some reforms so um these steps are to tackle fast fashion by um incentivizing in recycling encouraging new innovations with design so it's really basically the new bill is around EPR and um it's not only the UK I think there's a real push before 2025 to kind of get um EPR mandatory in in various different countries but I'll, I'll hand over to Chandru to speak a bit more about what he knows about that and I'll share the link
1: thanks Bukola hi Stacy. great to uh, reconnect Um, I wish they did lump textiles together with plastics, Um, only because the beauty of EPR is really its simplicity in understanding and and execution. Sadly, I think the garment industry globally is incredibly powerful. Uh, From my experience, I think it's fair to say that corporates and brand owners don't like EPR to be mandatory, Because what it really does is it pushes the responsibility of cleanup on them. Uh, The sad reality, though, is when you do that, boy, do you come up with quick solutions because solutions need resources. And who have the resources are the ones who are putting out the products in the first place. Uh, As we speak, there's a UN environmental conference happening in Nairobi, Kenya. Uh, I know on their agenda is a call for the un to come up with a treaty on plastic pollution Uh, i haven't seen the detail if plastic pollution is very packaging centric or it extends to other products like textiles uh, because in my experience if they did put that in uh, i think we would see action far sooner uh, than if we just waited on. Uh, brand owners and corporates to do the right thing. So I don't know if that addressed exactly, Tracy, what you were alluding to, or if you'd picked up uh, something else. Um, Happy to have another crack at it if I didn't answer it.
2: Well, you're spot on about um, brands and holding companies not being super interested in solving via EPR But I do think there are new technologies that are going to assist with that in the future. And I don't know if you know of any of those digital solutions and how they can or will play a part in the future of recycling textiles. It just seems so frustrating and so obvious that they could Um, systems into place relatively easily um, and don't and I'm just curious why I guess there's no real return for them Um, so the next question related to that would be do you believe in offsetting um plastics offsetting let's say a company um you know, produces 50,000 garments and can they offset it by buying your fiber from um, South Africa?
1: Wow, that's a loaded question. Um, Incredibly, uh, almost a toxic uh, subject matter. Um, I used to be a big fan of offsets. You know, I myself would try and motivate brand owners who had a plastic footprint in one product to get involved in what we did uh, as a way of offsetting but what it did it enabled them just to expand uh, or you know what was already a challenging pollution issue by making it a bigger pollution issue so over time i've become less of a fan of offsets uh, i really think even if they buy fiber from me in south africa uh, the biggest challenge the garment industry has is on design uh, until they can start working out solutions to make garments recyclable, um, then the reality is, I think offset more often than not will border on greenwashing and won't really give us uh, tangible solutions. So that's really from from my experience. Thanks, Tanji. And um,
0: thanks, Stacey. I think um, the, the article that I just shared just speaks to the previous question that you asked. I think the... In the UK, there's, um, I think, seven different um, sectors, including textiles, plastic packaging, and um, plastics and packaging that are going to be um, put forward for the um, EPR schemes by the end of the year. So that's what it said. Does that answer the question that you were asking, Stacey? And um, in regards to the greenwashing offsets, um, I think I want to kind of set the scene a bit more on the conversation of EPR so everyone in the room understands the foundational. Um, benefits and then we can talk a little bit more about the challenges as well, if that's okay. Um, Stacey, does that does that link speak to your answer? Um, answer. Sure. I'm
2: uh, sorry if I jumped the gun a little bit there. I'm just wondering what we can do as far as offering solutions to companies, um, maybe yes. just reframing what EPR...
0: Actually, yeah, well, is we'll get to we're going to yeah. get to that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Thank you. Yeah, Thank you so you- much. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to hand hold the conversation so everyone gets the same page and then we'll get to some cl- conclusions and solutions um, towards the end of the conversation. I just want to make sure that everyone's in the loop. I think you might know a little bit more about what EPR is. So that's why you're asking such um, detailed questions. But I don't want to lose the conversation for people that don't know what EPR is and how it relates to sustainable fashion. Does that make sense? So we're going to loop back to that. Absolutely. Yeah, and then you can let me know if the article that I shared is useful as well. Um, yeah, so just to just to bring it back a little bit for Chandru, um, some of the benefits of EPR, so we're thinking about sustainable fashion, so we're talking about circularity, really. Like, ha- like the idea that you say that it needs to be mandatory to be effective is really what, what I'm very interested in, and I know Stephanie's in the room as well we're talking we've been talking about activism, so it's all about legislation and getting bills passed and things like that so for the for the fashion industry to be more circular e p r is one of the key components and the legislations and the bills being passed to kind of ensure that this actually takes place so um just the just as a foundational piece like the benefits of epr would be for sustainable fashion or circularity would mean enhancing things like collection services supporting design and durability and recycling encouraging reuse and like circular business models like rental schemes and things like that so um just like in in mind that we are talking specifically not about packaging but only but about the whole circular, so, so packaging does come into it, but the whole circularity of fashion. Um, do you want to just talk a little bit about some of the be- benefits that I mentioned and how um, mandatory EPR could kind of help those things um, more significantly?
1: Surely, yeah. Um, for me, one of the underappreciated beauties of EPR is, in a nutshell, it just redefines who the polluter is. Traditionally what's happened, you know, we hear this notion of polluter pay principle. Uh, for the longest time, the polluter's been the consumer. And that has, for want of a better term, given brand owners a get out of jail card where they've wasted so much time and effort on this notion that we can educate consumers um, without then having in place uh, recovery stations, uh, recycling companies ready to take the products uh, end use for it. So when all of a sudden you redefine the polluter as the producer, which in most countries where it's law uh, is the brand owner, what happens is when you set him a target without which he can't continue to trade his products in your market, you kind of create this uh, seamless transition to investments in collection systems, investments into redesign of products to make sure that they are truly recyclable. Suddenly you'll see investments in uh, recycling companies as well as the most critical part uh, as what you find in many mandatory EPR legislation, a call that any new product, and in this case a garment, has to be made from at least X percent of an old garment. And what really drives a recycling economy is end use. As I said earlier, if you don't have end use markets ready, You can spend a lot of money on collection. You can spend a lot of time. But the sad reality is all those products just end up back in landfill. So the minute you make it mandatory, as they've done now in packaging, the move to action is actually phenomenal. Um, And as long as you've raised or set your targets meaningful, as long as they grow over a time space and don't stagnate, what it also does, it counters the issue of you know, chasing a moving target. What I mean by that is we know that with a growing global population, we're soon to be 8 billion people on this planet. It's great if we're recovering 50% today, but it means we're not collecting 50% of a growing consumption volume. Now, you know, for me, the first thing about sustainability is manage consumption, but boy, is that a difficult um, thing to translate into action. But if we can hold the producers accountable, that while they produce more and then sell more and then profit more, a portion of those profits are mandated to go back into collection, into recycling, into reuse, as well as clean up uh, uh, operations, while also being mindful of stakeholders in their industry. So I think also what we're starting to see is that the abuses that permeate at different levels in all industry are not exasperated by these mandatory EPR systems. So for us, we're already starting to see it in paper and packaging, as well as electrical and electronic goods and lighting in South Africa. If we can somehow just translate that, and I know there's already been a call to the department in South Africa that one of the next industries they should look at is garments. If we could somehow get this uh, out globally, I think we've got a really good chance Uh, at getting sustainable on fashion so hopefully that answers it thank you
0: yeah it really um does lead into another point that i want to make but before i get there i just want to just for people in the room that are still trying to get their head around it so today we're talking about EPR, so that's extended producer responsibility so it's the idea that um basically it's legislation that places the responsibility of the treatment of and disposal of um, consumer products on the producers, manufacturers and retailers. So the responsibility to handle the disposal of whatever you produce is on the producers, manufacturers and retailers. So that's EPI extended producer responsibility. So, yeah, Chandru, you really set the tone of the conversation. And um, I just want to know for the people in the room that are wondering, like, how does it work? So just a little bit of detail in terms of like, legislation to promote recycling efforts and, and require the producers to develop take-back programs or um, more sustainable products designed how does it actually work and then I want you to talk a bit about the, um, the 1p levy on the garments and how much can be raised in that but I want to first of all find out how does it actually work
1: so Bukula I, I, I get asked quite often you know it's great in Well, that Chandru, you're asking for a push to have legislation, but we're not government. You know, how do we go out there? How do we, you know, enact uh, changes in legislation? But what many people don't know, and obviously these are for those of us blessed enough to live in a democracy, legislation can be initiated by the average citizen on the streets. There are processes for these, but if you don't know how to trigger them off, then really what we'll do is just talk about this subject forever. So for us, even though the law was signed on the 5th of November 2021, we were dialoguing in our individual capacity as well as industry bodies with the Department of Environment uh, under an umbrella legislation that was released in 2003 called the Waste Act. And we canvassed and we petitioned and we showed what the rest of the world was doing But it was pretty much a five-year process to get it signed off to law. And yes, COVID did delay it, but I'm really proud to say we did it. But what they did is they looked in the case of paper and packaging at different packaging substrates and said, well, based on best practices globally, your target for recovery of what you put out in the market is X percent in year one, increasing to Y percent in year five. Plus from what you collect, our expectation is at least 90% of it or whatever the number was, will be recycled. We also want you to set up then a non-for-profit producer responsibility organization, which we are gonna have audited. So any notion that uh, you're gonna be able to hide behind your numbers without having checked went out the window, as well as in some instances, we want you to make sure that a new plastic bottle for beverages, for example, in year one, contains at least 10% recycled content going up to 20% in year five. And what that's really doing for us is driving the demand for the product, which is driving us to go out and collect more bottles and diverting them uh, from landfill. What that's also doing is driving the brand owners like the Coca-Colas of the world to look at their packaging to say, well, in a South African context, how can we redesign our packaging to make sure that firstly, we're going to meet our recovery targets and secondly, then our reuse targets. So it's very specific to different types of products and there's a call to be audited. There's a call for lifecycle analysis so what we don't inadvertently do is switch from what already has an environmental impact to products that might have a higher environmental impact. So hopefully that uh, adds uh, a little bit of uh, information on how it's working over here.
0: Yeah, and that's really great. And I think it shows that there's a process in the system that needs to be followed. And um, I'd love to definitely have more conversations to break down like the steps that needs to be taken. But I know in the UK, they are pushing forward on trying to um, put start, start an EPR scheme. So that means the infrastructure will be there to support businesses that want to participate at some point. And it's good that they're trying to achieve that before 2025. So um, I just want to. And
1: if I out... can, Bukola, yeah. very quickly, it's interesting how now a lot of that infrastructure is actually being funded by the brand owner. Because governments have limited budgets, especially in our parts of the world, where the polluters, aka the producer, profits a lot from the sale of the product. So for us, what's been really an eye opener is how now there's a lot of investment by the brand owner into collection infrastructure, which never happened before.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that brings me on to the next point that I I heard or I read or a fact or information that I've come across on this it says that um, estimated that one P levy per garment could raise uh, 35 million a year to contribute towards recycling technologies and improve the collection and automation systems and consumer awareness campaigns. So so that that would be just one P on the garment. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the levies and how that works to raise that money? Yep. For the, um. Yeah.
1: What, what many parts of the world, and bless the Scandinavians, I think they introduced us to it, is what they call eco-modulation fees. Uh, what it does is obviously some products are more harmful to the environment than others. Um, what they've done is used a fee structure to discourage the use of harmful products versus those that are less harmful. Number two, what it's also done is these producer responsibility organisation need to put forward their budgets to the minister for approval, showing how they calculated the fee to reach the target. So if you need in year one to collect 60% of every PET bottle you put out in the marketplace, you need to really put out in detail to the minister and her team how you came by the fee. So before what used to happen was when it was a voluntary system, The fee was calculated pretty much to minimize the cost for industry and allow them just to show uh, something happening on the surface wasn't really aligned to a target. But now, because it's mandatory to collect a certain percentage, the fee has to be sufficient to be able to hit that target, failing which uh, the penalties are, are quite steep. So two ways that the fees work. One is to reward well-designed products that will get recycled as opposed to be theoretically recycled and number two is the fees have to be mindful of the recovery rates of what has to be diverted from landfill thank you
0: yeah um i don't know if stacy has any um now we're getting more into the conversation i'm going to go into a bit more about implementation i think um france um were the first to introduce EPR for textiles. I think that was in 2007. So um, producers pay lower fees for garments that meet durability standards and um, can be recycled and in and like have recycled material or can be recycled or yeah. So um it's that like the longevity of items and um, reducing the number of um unwearable items being donated to landfill so um and increasing the lifespan of each item. So um, apparently in in france it's it's shown that EPR can remove barriers caused by um um defining textile waste so it it kind of allows people to understand what can be recycled and it increases collection rates and um, reuse rates as well just having that in place um I don't know, if Stacey, because that's the next part of the conversation that I want to go into. So the implementation and like that case study of like France, how that's working. But um, Stacey, before we move on to that with Chandru, is there anything that you wanted to add um, in regards to your questions or from the understanding of where we've brought the conversation so far?
2: No, this has all been so informative. And I wish there was a clap um, icon that I could just permanently put above my head about this conversation <laughs> because it's just been so interesting. But um, if I could just ask one thing about the where we're going next. Um, yeah. One of the challenges that I've seen is um, connecting dots with um, just producing the items, the manufacturing items that tend to be um, global in scope. And, um, because that landscape is so complex, it doesn't seem, I mean, just, it just seems like an insurmountable problem to solve at this point. So if you could speak to that, um, because it does involve more shipping, more manufacturing locations, um, I guess that's just related to the infrastructure, um, Topic that we're going to cover. So, thanks if you can address that too, Shandra.
1: Yeah. Um H- Chandra, did you need me to repeat the point or did, did you? Did no, you no. Uh, I get it. And, you know, it's interesting to sometimes look at other industries. Um, and the French seems to be awfully progressive on these things. I don't think they get enough credit sometimes. But um, examples from other industries, which may then translate into garments produced halfway around the world is what they call carbon border tariffs. So right now, if you make garments in Bangladesh and you ship it into Europe, there might be a duty you pay uh, to put it in. Uh, What they're talking about now is come 2025, only for a few products in the beginning, but you'll understand how you can just add products as you go along. They're starting with heavy duty items like steel and concrete is when you send your product from overseas into Europe, for example, you've also got to declare what was the carbon cost to make that product and ship it over to the country destination. And then what they're going to do is base another tariff stroke duty based on the carbon cost. Because what they're realizing is just because you can buy it cheaper from the East doesn't mean that you haven't contributed to environmental decay not just halfway around the world, but as we're now starting to learn, decay halfway around the world is impacting everyday life for all of us all around the world. So eventually my prediction is they will add items like garments where there'll be a set system where you have to disclose what's the carbon price of the product. And if it's very high, Stacy, then you're going to pay high tariff duties to get your products into certain markets. So I don't know if that addresses uh, the question, but that's what I forecast will happen based on what I'm seeing elsewhere.
2: That is fascinating and sounds like a good solution, actually. Um, I probably shouldn't say that being in the fashion industry, but um, I really believe in those kinds of solutions. They have to pay for what, the damage that they're doing to the, the whole planet at this point. And I do think there is a social element to that solution as well, hopefully in providing better jobs and um, more money to the countries that manufacture these items and deserve it.
1: Well, I think to your point earlier, the role for me of digitization, that's just swamping us is really around traceability and measuring of uh, not just financial cost or environmental cost, but things like social cost. So a day will come where you can't sneak in your product if it isn't environmentally friendly, if it isn't socially friendly in your part of the world. And just because you're out of sight uh, doesn't mean that they don't get to capture you. And I think that's what I like about digitization. It's going to give us amazing traceability from source uh, to end of life thank you
2: i'm so excited about this topic because i'm working on an outline for that exact solution right now for a company that i'm working with so maybe we should get together on the back channel
0: amazing yeah and this is what we're um we've been discussing in the club um how to kind of like support this push for mandatory EPR so the, the conversation about activism last week was really introduction to like how to be more active and kind of share the message and and things like that and and this is now the topic that we want to be active on as a club anyway um each individual might have a specific in industry point that they want to push in their own activism but as a club and um, this is this is definitely what we're galvanising behind. Um, there's a group of us kind of working together to get um, get that um, organised. So um, yeah, so it's really exciting to share and we're going to be doing more rooms on activism and probably on EPR as well, just to kind of push this out to more people and, and get more people behind it. So um, that being said, I, I've shared the link of the, the plans and um, proposed for a new scheme in the UK. So my question really is for Chandru, What are the steps we need to make EPR mandatory in our country? So, like, to support this new bill, what would you say? Like, we need to start doing in terms of our activism.
1: So, Bukola, you mentioned that um, there was a proposal to put on one P per garment. Interestingly enough, that proposal's been there, I think, for the last four or five years, uh, because people got distracted for understandable reasons because of COVID. Uh, government stroke influencers uh, were able to have it removed off the agenda when it came up for discussion at what are public hearings for these things. So what can we do is get ourselves, even in our individual capacity as a citizen of the country, get ourselves registered as a stakeholder with the relevant department that looks at these. So either it's going to be your Department of Environment or your Department of Trade and Industry or both which means any time that there's public engagement on this subject, which they're obliged to do, you get notified. And if enough of us are on that group, as happened in South Africa, when corporates tried their damnedest to influence the agenda or influence the detail of the legislation, we were there to counter. And it was interesting how just one or two voices Uh, to counter in the absence of no voices to counter, I think had a huge impact in landing us on legislation being signed into law last year. So for me, get active, get registered, be part of the process. Uh, There are lots of organizations beyond the WWF and Greenpeace uh, who are getting active in these spaces. Alert them. Uh, More often than not, they will lend their weight and their resources And a lot of this is actually, for me, just pure common sense. And it's not complicated. I think those who have bad intentions are very clever in complicating these issues around EPR, but it's a very simple notion. You want to sell a product in our country, then you must be responsible for its end of life. It's as simple as that. So that's my advice. We've done it over here. Uh, many people have done it in other parts of the world. It's becoming incredibly popular, um, not just in Europe. There individual states in America that are signing into law, mandatory EPR, coming into force in the next few years. Uh, I think Australia, India, uh, South America, uh, a lot of places now uh, looking to enact uh, mandatory EPR. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's
0: great. And I think um, that just gives me things... To do all my to do this, find the organizations and um just share the word about how to get signed up and notified about things and take it to the next step. So um yeah so I've got a couple more questions um just to dig a little bit deeper into um your understanding so you spoke to me on the back channel about um the hidden costs of EPR schemes and how to kind of um mitigate that so I don't know if you want to speak to
1: to that point a little bit sure Bukola. so I mean again from experience on on this five-year journey to get it law uh, a lot of pushback from government industry sorry not government was about the cost of doing all of this you know we don't have collection systems we don't have recycling systems but eventually I think the penny dropped Uh, it couldn't be a continuous response by industry that, you know, we're never going to have this. Um, A debate started, all right, if we don't change anything, are we not bearing a cost to society anyway because of pollution? And what's been coming out over the last few years, if not longer, is with climate change, with not just plastic pollution, but all the products that we put out, There's an effect on the quality of air. There's an effect on the quality of our water. There's an effect on food harvesting. So indirectly, we as society bear a hidden cost by consumption and the resulting waste thereof. So even though we're starting to see solutions which might be a little more expensive than the way business was done before, What we're also realizing, well, it's offsetting hidden costs that were out there if we didn't do changes around mandatory EPR. So I think it's really important that when people push back on cost, that it's contextualized in the frame of what are the hidden costs that you never tell us about when you sell your products in our country. The flip side of that, we're also now starting to see Thankfully, it's a minority, some bad faith actors on the sustainability side who are taking undue advantage of consumer perceptions and are now starting to charge a little too much for solutions that either don't work, aka some of these biodegradable products that have entered our market, or um, are just too expensive to be sustainable in their own right. But I think it's really important to give give context to some of the pushback when, especially at startup, um, the cost of a product might go up more than just making it halfway around the world in the Far East.
0: Yeah, really, really important points. I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up to um, cover that. I think it's really important, and and those hidden costs are far, far, far greater than um, we even can. Can consider, Um the IPCC came out with their report on Monday, and obviously because with everything that's going on in the world, no, there's not been no no um sound or like response on like where we are now. So um yeah, I think I think it's really important that we start putting that forward as well. um The hidden costs of not not actually having this in place. Um, so thanks for that, Chandru. Um. Yeah, so I've got a final question, and we've got about 15 minutes left. So I, I want to open up the floor to anyone down there or Stacey that has any questions. After we've obviously taken you through the the journey of understanding, then we do definitely want to get like some questions and like a bit of discussion around um, this topic. So um, my final question for Chandru really is about enforcement. So um, what are the challenges when it comes to enforcement of EPR? So like things like Penalties and i think regulators are able to apply um penalties and sanctions um and fines and things like that um and even to the point of confiscating products and restrictions on as- access to markets um so i just don't I, I don't know if you wanted to talk a bit about enforcement and how that works the challenges or what your experience with that has been and um apparently in Germany, um, third parties can also bring um, civil competition complaints against parties that are failing to comply so um yeah so what what about enforcement and penalties and things like that
1: surely bakula so a valuable lesson we learned is you know governments can legislate till the cows come home but if they don't enforce the laws um, then they're toothless and worthless and should never have come out in the first place but where and i don't know if lucky is the right word Uh, Where we ended up with the mandatory EPR laws of South Africa is the penalties for noncompliance weren't just financial, which corporates are very good at monetizing into the cost of their product and just passing it back to consumers, but they also made it a criminal offense. So what does that mean is if you are deemed to be noncompliant, you run the risk of not just a financial fine, but you could spend up to 15 years in jail. Now, who goes to jail? It's not the machine operator or the garmenter. It's the CEO of the company, the finance director of the company, it's the shareholders. And what was really interesting is when that legislation was signed into law, I don't think my phone has ever rung as much as it has uh, because when that realization came, boy, was there an even greater push to action. So while mandatory EPRs are solution i think we also really have to be mindful that the penalties for non compliance are also meaningful failing which uh, corporates and brand owners will use loopholes to try and continue uh, business as usual so an experience from our side and you know hopefully that's a bit value as you chart your journey um, in your individual jurisdictions thank you
0: Thank you, Chandru. This has been an amazing conversation. We've got Stephanie up on stage as well. I'm I'm glad that you could come up. Um, Yeah, so I think it's really important to understand. I think it's a little bit like the green claims stuff. I can see Lucy's down there in the audience. Um, We've been working on some um, workshops and things like that to kind of explain to businesses what the green claims are about and and um, what the enforcement is and the penalties and things like that so and then um, with the global fashion marketplace part of my consulting actually helps businesses solve that problem of getting their green claims right and so it's great to be partnering with Lucy on that type of thing to kind of make sure businesses understand the gravity of these new this new legislation and I can see that with the EPR stuff that kind of thing would definitely be needed I think the, the framework to support businesses to actually be able to comply with this because it's quite a big ask needs to be thought about as well um so yeah I think it's a big challenge ahead but I think it's a really important thing to work towards and I think it's as you said Chandru doable um it doesn't seem like out of this world to kind of push for that and then support businesses in a framework to kind of actually fulfill that and I think a lot of people, I can see Sonia's here as well, um, a lot of people that are consultants like myself, once we get our head around this and we can push for this, we know how to support b- businesses to achieve that goal. I think it's definitely something that as a club, we're going to be introducing more conversations around this, more conversations around activism, and then how you can take that away into your own field and um, push that forward would be amazing to hear feedback on that. So, um Yeah, so now you guys know where the direction that we're going, we want to be intentional, we want to be action driven as a club, we don't want to just meet every Tuesday and then just have a conversation, we want to kind of really be working towards things together, we've got a bit of a group in the background and we've got the membership and we're supporting businesses as well, so we really want to make our time together worthwhile and these kind of conversations and, and setting the foundation of like what we are trying to achieve together as a club is really important. So I really appreciate you, Andrew, because I think we had this conversation about EPR <laughs> this time last year when the when the club started, and you were like EPR, EPR, we must must work on this, and and we're we're getting there. I know it's a year later, but we're getting the conversation out there now, and um, I really really appreciate your time on this, and I think it's been amazing. Um, so. But Stacey and Stephanie, what are your thoughts um, with obviously what our plans are, what what the conversation has been, anything that you want to say really, any questions? We've got about 10 minutes and if anyone down there wants to come and add a point, Sonia, Lucy, I can see you there and then JP, Alejandra, Maria. She, oh, I think I know Ashita and Love. Uh, I think I recognise you guys um as well. So I think most people are in the club already. Um yeah, what are your thoughts?
2: May I ask a one quick question of Chandru? Um why aren't you at the UN right now? I i that's a sin, sincere question. Um it just seems like a global answer for um the UN. And I I don't can you speak to that?
1: Sure. Um one reason is COVID. Uh, so, traveling is not as easy as it used to be, uh, especially out of South Africa. Uh, we've lost a lot of our airline connections. So, there's a logistical challenge for me, and I need to get to Kenya, funny enough. And I'll think of being there in April. But, number two, more than a UN treaty, which we must appreciate doesn't happen overnight and will still take a long time, I'm incredibly encouraged by the rollout of legislation on mandatory EPR being more productive in terms of tangible solutions in real time. For me, if we get to the UN treaty, uh, even in two, three, four, five years' time, it'll just be the the cherry on top. And also, I think sometimes for others, you know, not all of us can get to these conferences and and have our voices heard. Uh, for me, it's just championing people to explain the power they have as an individual citizen, you know, of their country. So I'm really hoping Bukola tomorrow morning, when the Department of Environment opens up, she's going to register her name as a person of interest on that 1P tax on garments. And the next thing she's going to realize, well, why are we only doing 1P? Let's go for 10P, raise 350 million pounds, and then we can do some real good work uh, on cleanup. But it's a far more encouraging environment Today, Stacy, than it was even a year or two ago. So, I, I, I guess my answer is: I don't think if I'm not there, that uh, we'll be in a worse place. I hope that answers it appropriately. Yes, it
2: does. I think you deserve to be there. You've done such great work on in this area. I'm just so glad to be part of this conversation. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Pleasure.
0: Amazing, Stephanie. Welcome.
3: Thank you very much. I really like this topic and I really feel like I'm just a baby in terms of learning about it. So, um but a couple well two or three things now, but one is you just were touching on like registering as a stakeholder and I have not heard of that. I'm in the USA and in California and I don't think we have that option here. Um, I mean, we certainly have lobbyists who register, but they're, you know, they're usually paid. Um, so I don't know how to do that or if that even exists in the United States. Does, do you know that, Chandra? Is, am, am I missing something or is it state by state?
1: Yeah, Stephanie, and at the risk of sounding like a show-off. It's, it's amazing how many times I've alerted my friends uh, on your side of the world to not just uh, national legislation, but even state legislation. Uh, You know, I think Oregon and Maine were, about a year ago, the first states to pass mandatory EPR to come into force. Um, I imagine a lot of it is literally going onto the relevant department's website, uh, looking for where this stuff is discussed, because everything needs public hearings in a democracy. And you literally just put your name you know, on the database uh, as a person of interest. So every time there's a meeting or there's a document that comes out, it'll literally be sent uh, to your mailbox. And that for me was quite a revelation from our experience over here because we thought a lot of these uh, laws were passed in corridors and dialogue only happened with the big corporates until now you saw how inclusive they are forced to be where they need to have civil society organizations and the NGOs, and everybody gets a voice, uh, which goes down as a matter of the So I think, Stephanie, you could, it's as simple as finding the right website, finding the access to the draft legislation that's being discussed, um, and putting your name down.
3: Well, I hope that's the case, because I am, excuse me, I'm an active volunteer lobbyist in um, a lot of different areas in California, and I have never been told about this or heard about this, so I'm gonna do some digging and see if we indeed um, have that option. Um, and I hope it's tr- I hope it's the case here, but I've never heard of it. Um, <clears throat> that would really be helpful. My other question is um, about the bad guys. So, for example, in California, we're working on a lot of different areas of plastic legislation, anti-plastic legislation, banning single-use plastics and on and on and on. Um, and, of course, the plastic corporations have been fighting it. They're finally at the table with us. Uh, they And they put a lot of money into that. So I'm wondering if you know or could sketch out What's going on with the um, the fashion and clothing corporations? Are they uh, donating to politicians' uh, re-election funds that are against this kind of legislation or are more conservative, or are they uh, actively working against it? For example, would they buy you know television advertising to encourage people to not vote for an initiative or? That kind of thing. So are they actively fighting against this uh, direction that we're talking about today? Or is it um, they're just silent and, um, you know, hoping it'll go slower than faster?
1: So the playbook, Stephanie, not just for fashion, but all industries, is until you're really on the spot, uh, you do nothing then as the temperature starts ratcheting up um the playbook says all right let's just go out there and do a a bit of what's tantamount to greenwashing. you know send out the right signals savvy pr nice marketing advertising and then you buy yourself some more time eventually then what happens the temperature goes up a little more and then they'll hit you with what's known as pilot washing what's pilot washing well listen we're now going to take back your garments Um, and we'll give you a coupon to buy a new garment. What's very telling is they never tell you where those garments that you return go to. And then the heat goes up a little bit more. And then eventually the government comes along. And that's when the lobbying starts. But I think what we're finding more and more, um, especially on the back of plastics packaging and the story of what's happening in the oceans, These corporates are now realizing their days are numbered. But if we want to fast track it, um, then the way to do that is to get active in EPR. Now, one thing I need to stress about mandatory EPR is we're doing something that we don't naturally like to do, which is inviting governments into our life. And that's tantamount to uncaging the tiger and holding on to its tail and hoping that it doesn't devour us also. So what we've also got to be mindful of is EPR can go wrong in certain instances. But because corporates have got to get out of jail card for so much, because we can't influence behavior at consumer level, eventually the doors open where governments have to come in. But to be part of that process to try and fast track it and to make sure it's meaningful for the part of the world you live in So don't give me an EPR scheme that works in Japan because I'm in South Africa and I don't have the same resources. It's really important to be part of that dialogue. So that's the playbook. And I imagine there is lobbying going on. But if we can remain active and bring attention to it, I think eventually mandatory EPR will come to a fashion as well.
3: Okay, thank you. Um, So. Um, the other thing I just want to touch on was what Stacy was mentioning about the UN. I, you know, I hang out in a lot of climate and sustainability rooms and um, it's pretty much people have kind of given up on um, these global kinds of solutions from our leaders I because it's so slow. If you think about it, you know, COP26, what does that mean? That means the United Nations has been holding these meetings once a year for 26 years. So, <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> so um, and when you said, when Shandu said it was slow, I, you know, you, that's exaggerated. You can say it's like a, you know, molasses, slower than molasses as we say here. So, um, I The real feeling is that you, it's a cliche I know now, but think globally, act locally. And I think that it's really incumbent on uh, the countries and the states within the countries and, and local to move this forward faster. And it will trickle up. I think, Stacy is really my feeling about it. So thank you and thank you for um, inviting me at Bacola and thank you Shandru, for your great, great um, education today and Stacey for your great questions. Thank you.
0: Thanks, yeah, we're coming to the top of the hour. I can see that quite a few people have joined the room. Um, today we've been talking about um, mandatory EPR. Um, so for those of you that don't know, I'll just give you a bit of a recap. Um, EPI is basically legislation that places a responsibility for the treatment of waste um, and disposable of certain consumer products on the producers. So the manufacturers and the retailers to take care of and dispose of those products at the end of life. So we've been talking about that. It's been a really great conversation. Um, I know Bev has come up. Um, We don't have a room. We usually have a room at um, 6 p.m. GMT. That's 1 p.m. Eastern, but we don't have that room this week um we have a couple of rooms next week next week so we're going to be talking about future proof in your sustainable fashion business and then we're going to have a sustainable fashion packaging room again and we've got a guest speaker called Corey connors that's going to be back with us um for that for that room but this week we've just got this room so i'm happy to stay a little bit longer um i'm actually um wondering as well because we've got the recording for the room i might actually use this as an episode for the sustainable fashion podcast because i think it was really really insightful conversation something that more more people should um listen to so um yeah that being said I can see um, Beth um, jumped off the stage again I don't know if that scared or she didn't want to say anything um yeah so I'm happy to keep this room going a little bit longer if, if anyone else that has been listening wants to come up and say something or ask a question on the topic I know a few of you um joined um probably within the last 15-20 minutes so I'm, I'm not sure how much you heard of the conversation but if not I'm happy to um close the room um within the next couple of minutes. So I'll leave that open. But Chandru, do you have any final thoughts or anything that might um, be an inspiration to anyone to come and ask questions or just to close off the room? And then Stacey and Stephanie, if you have anything to say,
1: um, I'm happy to hear it. Sure, Bakola. And again, in this drive to explain what EPR is, the analogy I give, uh, and again, it talks to its simplicity. We actually all practice EPR every day. What do we mean by that? It means when we go home, we're very mindful of our immediate surroundings. So if I was lucky enough to be invited to any of your houses for dinner and I turned up at your front door with a bottle of wine, chances are you're going to let me in your door. If, however, I landed up with one week's of my garbage and I was smelling like you know what, you might actually just slam the door in my face So what mandatory EPR says is if you want to bring products into our country or state or city or town or whatever, we are now going to hold you responsible for that product at end of life. You can't just come and profit from us as a society and not factor in end of life and the possible hidden costs that you leave on us while you have profited in the same way. So really... The beauty for me of EPR is the simplicity of it as we practice every day in our living lives. So hopefully that also helps, you know, when we're trying to, because for me, what's the other danger is far too often, and corporates are very good at this, is we overcomplicate our solutions. And once we start overcomplicating solutions, we lose people's interest, we lose people's attention, and boy, do we get disheartened. So wherever possible I think, and I've seen, results comes from simplicity. So hopefully that helps as well. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Yeah, Chandra, I I really like that point that you're saying about simplicity. I think this conversation has really broken it down to me. I can see, like, a path forward. I see it's a big challenge, but if you just take steps, like, step by step, then, and if you have that kind of perseverance to keep on, Go in and not let go of the topic, kind of like a dog with a bone, and you'll get there eventually. So, I think that's like the journey and the tenacity that we need to kind of accomplish and support businesses to actually make this change. But I understand, and just to speak to Stephanie's point, that um, it does feel too too little, too late. But I, I think if we can curb the impact that we're having on the environment, then we don't have to see the worst of the worst Do you know what i mean we can still and then i think thinking about regenerative if we can kind of curb our impact then we can start thinking about how can we start to regenerate and um, so I, I still feel hopeful i think um it is a, a challenge and it's a, a long journey probably longer than we don't have the time um for the for the probably how long it's going to take but i think it's still worth putting in the effort um